working on a theme of building a sure foundation this year, a sure foundation for this congregation. We're talking about the future of Northside and some things we need to do to have a sure foundation. Our current series is entitled Perfectly United, and we've been talking for quite a few weeks about the importance of unity, how we need to be unified as a congregation to be strong. Uh, We've talked about a number of things so far, the importance of unity. Uh, It's who we are. We're the body of Christ. It's what Jesus prayed for. That was his last request, that we be one, those that follow him. And we talked about what causes division is the flesh. The spirit produces unity. The flesh causes division. We talked about how we personally can do things to create unity in the body here. We talked about the importance of being united in doctrine, understanding what the essentials of doctrine are. And when we talked about weak and strong, we understood that there's disputable matters. There are things that we can't agree on or won't agree on, and that's all right. We also talked about last week traditions and how they must never replace God's Word or hinder His work. Traditions can do that. Our key verse is 1 Corinthians 1.10, where Paul told the church in Corinth to be united. Agree with one another. Be no divisions among you. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. And that's what we've been working on for a number of weeks. Today, we're going to talk about united in worship. Uh, Not just that we're all in one room at one time, but the fact that we should be united in the uh, way we worship, in the things that we do, uh, how we worship, uh, be agreed on those. Uh, I'll probably hit a few hot buttons today. At least if you're visiting with us, I might hit a hot button. Uh, Northsiders, we've been working on unity for so long that we don't have hot buttons anymore. Uh, we just get along with each other. Uh, but if you're visiting, I might, might find a hot button or two when we talk about this topic of worship and what we do in worship and how we do it. Uh, this topic closely related to what we talked about last time. Uh, look at this verse. Last week... Uh, Mark 7 was one of our key passages. Jesus said, They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. Notice there at the start, you, they worship me in vain. Now, I know that this is talking about bigger things than just public worship, but they're related uh, the, the Pharisees we talked about last week had traditions that they held on to and they abandoned the gods of men for uh, the commands of God for their traditions. And God points out, you worship me in vain. When you replace my commands with traditions, that at the very least, these things are related, worship and traditions replacing commands. Now, make, before we get started, let me make sure you understand. We're not discussing What worship is. Uh, If you want to know what worship is, we talked about that a few years ago. You can go back to the series on awesome worship. Uh, Actually, it was clear back in 2005. We haven't gone into that much detail since then. But we talked then about what worship is, what pleases God, uh, how worship has to be from the heart, and uh, styles of worship. And we got into quite a bit of detail on that. Uh, so you can go back and get that series from the library if you want to and 
find out more about that. That's not what we're talking about today. Uh, let me also clarify. I know that worship is more than just the hour that we're together here. I know that all of life is worship. I understand that concept. Uh, but there is also a special time in the Bible. God pays a lot of attention to a special time when his people come together. Now, we can call that worship time. We could probably call it more realistically the assembly. Uh, we come together to worship, uh, but we worship the rest of our life also. Uh, so we come together and the, the assembly of the church is a special time. Uh, the church that had unity problems, the one that we've kind of based this series on, the church in Corinth, the church that had unity problems had assembly problems. First okay. Corinthians 1 starts out, and Paul says, I hear there's divisions among you. And I appeal to you not to have divisions, to be perfectly united, to agree with one another. That's where the book starts. And then when he gets over to 12, 13, and 14, he talks specifically about the assembly and what they're doing in the assembly and all the problems that they've got where they don't agree. In fact, the passage that was just read for you. He said, I hear, I don't have any praise for you about your assemblies because I hear when you come together, you've got divisions. They had assembly problems. At the end of 12, 13, and 14, at the end of chapter 14, verse 40, Paul said, things need to be done decently. They need to be done in order. They need to be fitting, is one translation. They had their assembly messed up because of their divisions and they couldn't get along with each other. And that's one place it showed up. Was when they got together to worship, they weren't all of one mind. So that's what 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians are about, is the mess they had made of the worship assembly. Now... Just two points I put on your handout. God commands worship and God desires worship. So worship is important. First Chronicles 16, 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We're commanded, and I know that's Old Testament, but we're commanded the New Testament also. He's commanded worship, and in the New Testament, John 4, it says he desires it. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, if God commands it and he desires it, and we come together to do it, just reason it out. Shouldn't worship, shouldn't the assembly be the most unifying event in the life of the church? It ought to be. The rest of the week we'd have our own things and we'd do things we go together. And yes, we're united and we stay in contact some in different ways. But at one time, the assembly, we come together. It ought to be when we are so unified. That, that's what ought to be in our hearts and minds is the unity there is in the body of Christ here. But unfortunately, what happens in the assembly in many places has provoked divisions. 
That's kind of backwards to me. I, I can't understand sometimes how the one thing that ought to be the most unifying event in the church ends up dividing churches. Shouldn't happen, but it does. And since this series is about avoiding division, that's what we need to talk about. A house divided against itself is in bad shape. It's in trouble. In fact, it can't stand, Jesus said. And in many churches, what ends up being a division, the fissure started out about what happens in the assembly. Shouldn't be, but it's a reality. Now, I'm not just talking about, uh, I'm not talking about Northside because I believe we are unified. This is a preventive series. But it's not just Churches of Christ. We've seen it in Churches of Christ and among the Brotherhood. But the whole religious world has been involved in battles over what happens in their assembly for a number of years. I don't know exactly when it started, 10 or 20 years ago at least. Uh, these are just some of the books that have been written, and there's a lot, lot more books written about worship wars, about how churches of all brands and denominations and kinds have fought over what happens in their assemblies. I imagine almost all of you in here have talked to a friend of yours who said something about their church and how things weren't going so well, and they were upset and they were going to leave, and he asked them why, and they said, well, it's that new pastor, he, he changed the worship. It's too loud for me now. You know, I don't like what they're doing this way, and I don't like what they're doing here, and it's just not the same. I don't know how many times I've heard that from people, from all different denominations. It's a reality. Religious publications are full of cartoons about worship wars. I picked a few out for you. Here's one. People leaving church, and the guy says, that was our contemporary service. Next is the traditional service, followed by a classical service, and then a casual service with a sports emphasis. Huh? Now, that's not that uh, unrealistic. There are churches that have those kind of things, have lots of options, lots of all different kinds of services. Uh, in this one, the usher is seating a couple and says, you want clapping or non-clapping? Yeah. This church has banned hand-raising. Going to go into the assembly, none of this. Okay. Changing things can have serious consequences, by the way. Guy says, I tried to tell him not to change the order of service. For those of you listening to the tape, the, the pastor's being led up to the gallows for <laughs> changing the worship service. Uh, so it's, it's everywhere. Now, changes, uh, what causes the worship wars, they vary. Uh, in denominational world, mostly it's about uh, what instruments can be used in the assembly. Some people were content with the piano or the organ and they started adding guitars and that was just, that was too far out there. Yeah. Sometimes it's about what volume things are played at. A lot of times it's about what songs are played. Speaking of volume, I forgot to bring them in here. I was going to bring a pair of earplugs to show you. I went to a wedding not too long ago. Big 
a community church here in town, and I went to this wedding, and I walked into the auditorium beforehand to kind of look around, and by each exit door, there was a stand with a basket on top, and they were full of foam earplugs. I thought about that a little bit, and some guy from the sound booth came walking by, and I said, tell me about these. And, by the way, on the stage, there were great, huge amplifiers, uh, speakers, huge, monstrous things all over the stage. And I said, tell me about these. And he said, well, he said, some people, if they get too close up to the speakers and stuff, they're a little too loud for them. So we provide those. And I was kind of frowning, and he looked at me like, well, what's wrong with you? You don't you understand the concept? And I said, you got to understand, I'm a preacher. And the idea of handing out earplugs... <laughs> Ah, that doesn't compute. You know, I, I can't figure this one out. But anyhow, the, the people argue about all sorts of things. Uh, whatever they argue about in denominations or our brotherhood or wherever, I think there's some common battle lines. And let's talk about some of these common battle lines that are drawn in the worship wars. First of all, it's sometimes called as traditional versus contemporary. Okay. Now, those terms are defined differently. You can see those terms on church marquees, you know, traditional service, 8 o'clock, contemporary, this one, etc. And whatever they mean, it boils down to contemporary is different from what it used to be. Everybody's tradition is different, but everybody kind of agrees that we're disagreeing over whether we stay with what we're used to or whether we do something else. Let's call it contemporary. Now, in the churches of Christ, traditional used to be traditional. Those of you that have lived long enough remember in the 50s and 60s back in there, if you went on vacation anywhere in the country and went into a church of Christ, you knew what you were going to find. Worship would feel like home. It was very similar. Same kind of song, same kind of uh, order of things, same kind of uh, sound to things. The place would look the same. A lot of the buildings looked the same. You know, tradition was tradition. Now, when you go on vacation or visit somewhere else and walk into a place with a sign out front that says church, you're not sure what you'll find. I have lots of people come back from vacation and come up to me and say, man, it's good to be back. You know, we went so-and-so or we went this place and you wouldn't believe what was going on there. Whatever it is is different from what we're used to. That's what traditions are. We talked about that last time. Uh, Probably the most common traditional versus contemporary is the music style, what's sung, uh, traditional has more old hymns, perhaps. Contemporary has more praise choruses, perhaps, and less hymns, and that kind of change. But whatever it is, this is sometimes how we define the battle lines, traditional versus contemporary. Secondly, sometimes the battle lines are old versus young. Now, in general, the older we get, uh, the more we like stability and permanence and constants. Uh, young people think change is good. You know, they got a short attention span. They don't remember what happened 10 minutes ago anyway. So change it. 
It's okay. Keep things shook up. Keep things rolling. And sometimes that's how we define this battle along these lines of old versus young. And I think it's not just that we get comfortable as we get older, perhaps. But another thing is, I think, uh, from analyzing some of the worship wars I've seen, I think young people tend to think that they've discovered the secrets of life. You know, it's new to them, and this is wonderful, and it's got to be different than it was, and this is the way to do everything. And that happens in every field, but also in religion. So a a young worship leader uh, thinks that, okay, I've found, I've figured out how to worship, and I just got to get all these old fogies to go along so they learn how to worship. So that's why the lines are sometimes drawn old and young. I've listened to uh, tape from worship leader conferences. We have those now in the Brotherhood where people are talking about how to do contemporary worship and all of that. And I listened to one well-known worship leader talk about his history, and he told these young worship leaders proudly about how he had gone from church to church to church, how he had gone to a church and pushed them for the new true way of worship that he had discovered, and they rebelled. They didn't like it. It caused problems. It caused divisions. He got run off, basically. Now, the way he put it was that the Spirit led him to another church to work his magic there. And my thought was always, you know, if you're going from church to church to church causing division, a Spirit may be leading you, but it's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not cause division. But anyhow, I think sometimes it's old versus young. Thirdly, I think sometimes we define the lines as it needs to be relevant to us or it needs to be relevant to outsiders. That's where a lot of this worship change has come from uh, in the history of it, I think. Uh, Churches want to attract the world, so we've got to be welcoming. A lot of churches, because all this concept came from churches that were planted by going into a community first and asking people, what turns you off about church? And then we'll do the opposite. There's churches that have started that way. And so let's make it relevant to people that don't usually come to church. The opposite is the, 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 the church is here to worship. This is our assembly. We've come out of the world to worship. It ought to be relevant to us. Well, if you're trying to be relevant to outsiders, people have done things like, well, they changed the dress. Let's have more casual dress. Let's make sure people know they can come casually. And let's indicate that by changing the way the preacher looks. Let's put him in jeans and a golf shirt or get him a shirt and he leaves the shirt tail out and he'll look real casual and everybody will really think that's cool. And we'll change the songs, too. We need a little simpler songs. Uh, The old hymns have just got so many big words and so much theology in them. So let's make some shorter ones, and they're easier to learn, and you can learn them quickly and all that. We'll sing those kind of songs. Let's have a little less Bible. And let's not talk about things like sin, because that might offend people. That sounds kind of judgmental. And so we'll change our service to where it's relevant to outsiders. And that that drives a lot of these changes. 
saw one cartoon, I almost put it in, but it didn't fit exactly, but I just remembered it. Uh, this cup, young man and young woman were uh, worshiping enthusiastically, and the, the young man said, man, I love your worship here at this church. Who's this Jesus that we keep singing about? And the young lady said, I don't know, but we've been singing about him for years. Okay, if you don't teach Bible, if you don't sing songs with theology in them, people don't learn. They may feel like they're worshiping. They may feel like they're having a good time. They may feel uplifted when they go home. But there's got to be some learning about who we are worshiping. Okay, fourthly, sometimes we draw the line as participation versus entertainment. Participation, if the model of that is, there's one person leading whatever is happening, and everybody else is supposed to participate. If we're singing or reading scripture or whatever, one person does it, and everybody else uh, pays attention or sings or participates, and they're part of it. The, the worship words are changing to where there's more people entertaining, if you will. That may not be the intent, but that's what happens. A praise team or a worship team uh, gets together and practices and learns new songs and then goes and performs. Now, I know in theory, worship teams and praise teams are supposed to lead the parts. They're supposed to improve the singing, uh, all of that. But I've seen in practice uh, enough places where the participation drops because there's somebody up here doing it right and we'll listen to them instead of participating. I think that's sometimes where the lines are drawn. Lastly, fifthly, uh, sometimes we draw the line, I think, between amateurs and professionals. Now, it's been the practice for many years, I think, in denominations to hire an organist. You've got to have a good organist. You may have to hire one from outside. You may have to hire a soloist. You may have to hire a few pieces of the band to, to make it proper. Well, in, in this part of the country, at least, it's very rare, used to be very rare, to pay a song leader. Uh, I know some places did that, but very few in this part of the country. But now it's very, very common to have a worship leader on staff. Somebody that that's his assignment is to produce the worship service. Uh, even if it's not a staff member, the principle exists, I think. Uh, we will pick the best. We'll pick the best four singers or the best eight singers or the best something and let them prepare and perform. may not be getting paid, but you see the difference between let's just all come and everybody participate and be as amateurs on let's have somebody perform to us. Yeah. Uh, those are just some of the word pairs that I thought of as I thought about this business of worship wars. Two other words I thought of. I think there's a couple of extremes in worship. Petrified and contrived. Petrified. When I was about 10 years old, I think we took a vacation through the southwest, the desert southwest. By the way, it was 120 degrees outside and there's no air conditioning in the old Buick. You know, that's why us old people are tough. You know, we, 
we, we, <laughs> the way we grew up. But anyhow, we got to the place that was called the Petrified Forest, and along the side of the road and places out in the desert, there were dark logs, it looked like. And if you got close enough to them, you'd find out they were stone. They used to be alive. They used to be trees. But they'd been there so long, and they had petrified. They'd turned to stone. I think sometimes churches have that kind of worship. We don't want any change. We don't want anything to be different. We're content with what we got. This is the way I grew up. This is the way we're going to keep doing it. If we change any little thing, we're going to start down the slippery slope, and who knows where we'll end up. And when there is no change, it eventually petrifies. I think the opposite of that, or an extreme of that, is when a younger person or a younger group decide, this place is just too dead. Oh, we've got to breathe a little life in this place. We've got to change the way we worship. We've got to make things a little more exciting. So we'll show you how. We'll get the team model up there. Uh, we'll model joyful worship for you. Uh, we'll sing the song that we've learned, and, and you clap along, and uh, we'll pray, and we, we'll do it all. And what happens when you force that, when you contrive a worship? We'll talk in a moment. Emotion is a result of worship. But forcing emotion or, or producing emotion doesn't produce worship. But sometimes in a contrived service, we'll say, let's do this, and now you do this, and you say this, and I'll say this, and you clap here, and you do this, and all that. And it doesn't work. Speaking of clapping, I went to a concert this uh, summer on our vacation, saw Larry Gatlin and the Gatlin Brothers Band, and they put on a great concert. But at some point in there, they started singing a few gospel songs. And they sang two or three, and they got to one, uh, I'll Fly Away. And this was at uh, the Biltmore Mansion in North Carolina, so it was a fairly uh, homogenous group, shall we say, there. And they started singing, and when they got the I'll Fly Away, uh, some people started clapping. And that went on for about ten seconds, and Larry Gatlin finally said, hold it, hold it, hold it, time out, stop. He stopped the band. He said, now... I understand what you want to do, but we got to sing this song, and white people can't clap on the beat. So let's just cut that out. He said, you're not laughing because you know it's true. You know? <laughs> well, and Gatlin says, it's easier to sing with you guys. Don't mess me up that way. Okay? That, that kind of contrived. It's kind of forced. It's not natural, see? Now, let's get serious. Whatever the battle lines are, it shouldn't be a battle. Whatever you call it, traditional versus contemporary, old, young, whatever, all the things I've talked about, there shouldn't be a battle about worship. Division comes from the flesh. Always does. Doesn't come from the Spirit. If the body divides or argues or fights over what happens in the assembly... What's the reality? 
The reality is there's some flesh problems. So let's close with that. Let's just talk about the reality of what we're talking about here. The first reality is if you're having a worship war, if somebody's fighting about what happens in the assembly, that war is less about the Bible and more about comfort. Let me explain. The Bible says almost nothing about the assembly. Almost nothing. There's a few examples of what we do. When the disciples came together, they did this. So we think, well, let's, we will do that. That will be scriptural. That's good. There's a few things, examples of what they did, but there is basically nothing about how they did it. There's nothing in the Bible, folks, about some of the things we fight about. So we're not fighting about the Bible. We're fighting about what we're comfortable with. There's nothing in the Bible that says whether you've got to sing out of a book or sing off a PowerPoint slide. Nothing in the Bible about whether the lights have got to be up or down. Nothing in the Bible about whether you've got to have one song leader or two song leaders or ten song leaders. Nothing in the Bible about whether you've got to all sing at one time or a solo could sing or a trio could sing. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible doesn't talk about whether one person reads the Scripture. It says to read the Scripture. Paul told Timothy, read the Scripture publicly. It doesn't say whether one guy's got to do it behind a pulpit or one guy can do it from a seat or whether everybody can do it together. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say whether you can clap or not in church. 1 Timothy 2.8 says specifically... Paul wanted people to pray lifting holy hands. But that makes us a little uncomfortable, so we kind of ignore that verse. It's not about the Bible, most worship wars. It's about what we're comfortable with. Now, I'm not saying all those things I just mentioned are good ideas. Some of them are bad ideas. But the Bible doesn't talk about them. We've got to use our wisdom and our, our knowledge to think through, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Does it lead the right direction or the wrong direction? Does it help us worship or hinder us? There's a lot of things we can discuss, but don't call it holy writ. Because the Bible doesn't talk about those things. And I'm not saying we ought to go out of our way just to make people uncomfortable. Comfort's good. It, there ought to be a, a uniformity, a sameness. A, a, it's human nature. We want to know what to expect. But we don't want to come in and have everything in chaos every week. I'm not saying we ought to do things just to make people uncomfortable. But I'm just saying when we do have a fight about what happens in worship, it's usually a lot less about the Bible than it is about what we're comfortable with. Second reality. Worship words are less about the pattern of New Testament worship and more about our preference. If you're 50 or up, 
you're my age or just a little bit younger and were raised in the church of Christ, you were so schooled in the five acts of worship that it's kind of become a checklist for us. We know that that's the approved examples in the New Testament is when they came together, they sang and they pray and they gave and they uh, communed and they preached. So we have those down. Sing, give, pray, commune, exhort. That's what you're supposed to do when you get together. But it's become kind of a mantra of where we check those things off and that means we've worshipped. And we've got to follow the pattern of New Testament worship. And we get comfortable with that. And the order and the process, perhaps. And we get to where we're so locked in on that, that pattern, that we don't want anything different than we're used to. It's, it's the comfort thing again. But we call it the pattern, but it's really our preference. I know people that have got upset when somebody sang a song during the Lord's Supper. The argument was, well, those are two separate acts of worship. You can't do two acts of worship at the one time. That's not Bible, folks. That's preference. You may not want to, but the Bible doesn't say anything about it. In fact, we already do it. We sing lots of prayer songs. If you sing a prayer song, are you singing or praying? Trick question there. Uh, We get, we have a New Testament pattern to follow. Well, sort of. But the New Testament pattern doesn't include a lot of things we argue about. New Testament pattern doesn't include one song leader. Doesn't include a Sunday night service. Doesn't include even an invitation song. That's just stuff that we've come up with, and they're our preference. Third reality. Worship wars are a lot more about self than they are about others. Almost always about self. Here's what I want, and I don't really care what anybody else wants. Wasn't the song service good today? I I really like the song service. You know why I like the song service? I thought it was outstanding. You know why? And Mark did a good job of leading, but that's not why I like the song service. I liked it because I picked all the songs. <laughs> I made a list. I made a list of my favorite songs, and I gave it to Mark. I said, here, pick all the songs out of this list. I love the song service. That's the way it ought to be. I ought to be happy. <laughs> And some of you probably didn't like it. Well, you know, I, I like fast songs. I like upbeat songs. I'm convinced that Paul and Silas sang a Stamps Baxter song in prison. That's what I like. So I made the song service, one that I like. Now, what if I got to do that every week? Some of you wouldn't think that was so funny, would you? It's all right for once, but some of you say, man, I need some of them slow, thoughtful, deep songs. I need a little, my eyes are dry. I 
I sing those when we have them and I understand it and I worship through them, I think, but it's not my favorite. Do you get it? If I picked every week, I'd be happy, but not everybody would. And since worship, the assembly is the one most unifying event of the, the body, when we come together, shouldn't we consider others? The heart of the problem, the heart of worship wars problems, the heart of all unity problems is when somebody's not willing to submit to others. I want it this way. I don't care what others want. And you can call that traditional, contemporary, old, young, relevant here, relevant. You can call it anything you want, but that's what it comes down to. Is here's what I want. That's the reality of worship wars, I think. Let's close with a better checklist for our worship. We're having a good worship. Let's go through this list and see if it fits. Worship ought to be God-centered. shouldn't be centered on us. It shouldn't be centered on the people on the stage. It ought to be God-centered. When we talked about awesome worship, we said we are all the performers and he's the audience. It's the way we ought to think about it. It should be God-centered. It should be from the heart. It's not just doing the right five things or the right order or any of that. Listen to Amos chapter 5. The people then were doing worship right. They had it down pat. They knew the order. They knew what to say. They knew how to sing when. They had it all exactly like they were supposed to. And God said, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. That's harsh. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. What was the problem? They were doing the acts. But there was no heart in it. Well, it wasn't coming from the right place. Third thing on the checklist, worship should be heartfelt. That's different than from the heart. A heartfelt is about emotion. We ought to feel worship. Now, I said before, emotion's the result of worship. You don't produce worship by producing emotion. But when you've worshipped, when you've encountered God, which is what worship is, then you have emotional reaction. Now, it may be an uplifting experience. It may be a terrifying experience. It may be an encouraging experience. But worship produces emotion in people. Now, we all react differently. We all different emotionally. One of my daughter-in-laws will tell Cindy and I something, some good news, some exciting thing about something, and Cindy will get all excited and go, and say, oh, that's so wonderful, and on and on. And my daughter-in-law will look over at me and say, are you excited? I'll say, wildly. <laughs> and I am. I just show it differently. So we're all different emotionally, but it ought to be heartfelt. When we leave worship, it should have made a difference. It should be transformative. Worship should be biblical. Now, there's very little in the Bible about what happens in worship and hardly anything about how it happens. But no, we can't just do anything we want. We do what's biblical. 
It should be relevant. Back when we talk about relevant, some people say, oh, those old words, people don't understand them and this and that and the other. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians, the church with problems, remember? They had assembly problems. They had the gift of tongues. Some of them could speak in other languages. And they were doing that in worship. It was fun. It was showtime. They were the performers. They were entertaining. And Paul said, if somebody hears that, they don't get it. It's not relevant to them. They don't know what you're talking about. You're not building anybody up. You're not helping anybody. So our worship ought to be relevant. We ought to sing songs that people understand. We ought to preach so people understand it. It's got to be relevant. And most important in what we're talking about, worship should be unified. It should be a unifying experience. It really worries me when places have two or three different worship services in different styles. And I know it may masquerade as outreach. We're giving people more options. We're saying if you like this, you come at 10. If you like this, you come at 8. And we're reaching more people that way. I think that's how it masquerades. But I think it really indicates that I want my way. And I really can't get along with people that want it another way. So we'll just provide two or three or four or whatever it takes. And we'll act like we're unified. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I don't know if that's the case in everything. It just worries me that it might be. I think our worship ought to be unified. It ought to be unifying. That's the one event of the week. Next week, we're going to talk about perfectly united. We'll wrap this series up, talk about how to be perfectly united in mind and thought. The lesson is yours. If you're here this morning and need to respond to the Lord's invitation, uh, we're going to invite you to do that. We're going to sing two more upbeat songs, by the way. (laughs) Jesus is coming soon and redeemed. Uh, Those of us that are in Christ have trusted our salvation to him. Uh, Singing Jesus is coming soon is great news. Uh, You look around at this world and he can't come too soon. Uh, We're ready for him to come. If you're not in Christ, any time he comes will be too soon. Uh, If you can't sing redeemed with the great feeling that you are redeemed, then maybe you need to take action today. Let's stand and sing. If you need to come, come.